New health orders after another record COVID reporting period. So we're tackling where we're seeing transmission events taking place. The crackdown on gatherings in private homes and where you should be wearing a mask. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson is stepping down. So today we begin the challenging and exciting process of rebuilding the party. What happens next for a party in turmoil? And the passing of a football legend. He clearly uh, has been and is a Canadian icon. Tributes pour in for BC Lions owner David Braley, who many say saved the CFL. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We begin with breaking news and new health orders from Dr. Bonnie Henry as COVID-19 case numbers continue to trend higher with a new daily record, 317 on Friday alone. Over the past three reporting periods, we have 817 new cases after testing close to 29,000 people. Our positivity rate is now 2.8% with total cases at 13,371. Sadly, we've had three more deaths. We've now lost 259 people to COVID-19. 77 people are in hospital, 26 patients in ICU. 10,734 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 2,325 active cases and more than 5,000 people presently in isolation. Aaron MacArthur is live for us tonight with more on this. Aaron, Dr. Henry says the new cases are directly related to social gatherings in private homes. And now we've got a new health order to that effect. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Before Thanksgiving, Dr. Henry was pleading with British Columbians to limit social gatherings. And it seems people weren't listening, especially here in the Fraser Health region where most of the new cases are found. Dr. Henry says a lot of those cases tied to the incubation period around Thanksgiving. We've had this recommendation in place for a while now, immediate family only and then the safe six. Today, that's been made a health order, which means people can be fined, face enforcement if they have too many people inside their own homes. Today, I am putting in a new provincial health officer order. This order limits gatherings in private homes to mo no more than your immediate household, plus your safe six, six additional others. This is to remind us that the rules are in place to protect us, that we need to be cognizant of having that safe space. And if you come from a large family that's living in a home together, six additional guests may be too many. And you may need to consider for the coming months to focus on your own immediate family. Erin, Dr. Henry has faced some pressure to make wearing a mask mandatory. She's not doing that yet, but she is changing her advice about masks. Yeah, the advice on masks is changing all the time, isn't it? And while she was crystal clear on gatherings, she didn't go as far as making masks mandatory. But she says we should all be wearing them inside public spaces, or public spaces inside particularly. She also wants companies and organizations to think about their spaces inside, maximizing space and minimizing contact. I'm also stepping up our recommendations and advice around wearing masks. It is now the expectation that people will wear a non-medical mask in public spaces. 
It's not an order because this is something that I know we support as part of our uh, mutual responsibilities to protect ourselves and to protect each other. Dr. Henry is really reluctant to make that mask mandatory order. Uh, schools at this point will still remain under the current system they're in. Middle schools and high schools will have mandatory masks in public spaces where social distancing can't be maintained, hallways, school buses, that sort of thing. But for the rest of the school system, things will be status quo. However, Dr. Henry does say school boards should think about teachers and staff and make sure their break rooms and lunch rooms are organized to maintain proper social distancing. Chris? She has always impressed upon us how important it is to be flexible. Thanks very much for that, Aaron. Well, Richmond is getting ready to roll out its mandatory mask policy at all city-run facilities. Starting November 1st, masks must be worn at all times inside city-operated community and recreation centers, the library, fire halls, and city hall. Face coverings can be taken off while using exercise equipment or swimming, of course but they must be worn when moving around the buildings. Visitors who are unable to wear a mask for health reasons and children under the age of five will still be exempt. Fraser Health is responding to outbreaks at two senior care facilities. Staff members at both the Amanitas Seniors Community in Surrey and the Agassiz Seniors Community have tested positive for COVID-19. Rapid response teams are on site and families of residents are being contacted. The infected staff members are in self-isolation. Now, two B.C. schools, Aaron mentioned schools, they are temporarily closed, these two anyway, after COVID-19 exposures. One is Mount Cheam Christian School in Chilliwack. The other is one you've heard about already in the Okanagan. At least 11 cases have been confirmed at Kelowna's École de lanz Saab, the French language school, with the province's first COVID-19 school outbreak. With both staff and students infected, the school says it had no choice but to shut down. 175 people have been ordered to self-isolate, while many others are choosing to stay home. There's lots of people that have to stay home, so we, we, can't, we, we can't run the school. There's people infected. There's people that have been close to the people infected. There's people that are waiting for a test. There's people that are in isolation. While the numbers of people with COVID are small, um, the requirement for those in contact to be in self-isolation has meant that uh, the school can no longer safely operate. The Okanagan's largest high school is also dealing with a COVID exposure. Kelowna Secondary has at least one case and 11 people linked to the school community are in quarantine. Today, Andrew Wilkinson did what a lot of people predicted he would, announcing his intention to step down as leader of the B.C. Liberals. There were rumblings even before the NDP won a majority government, and this afternoon, Wilkinson bowed to the inevitable. Richard Zussman reports. Election fallout. Leading the B.C. Liberals has been a great honour. But now it's time for me to make room for someone else to take over this role. Andrew Wilkinson quitting as leader two days after guiding the B.C. Liberals to the party's worst performance since 1991. But he's not leaving quite yet. I've asked the party president to work with the party executive to immediately determine the timeline for a leadership selection process. And I will step down as leader as soon as the new leader is selected. Wilkinson not taking any questions from reporters, the entire press conference lasting just 97 seconds. Many want to see the party take time, 
before announcing a new leader. The supporters of the party need to have a healthy dialogue, a healthy discussion, um, so I don't think it should be uh, in no rush. There are around 600,000 votes still to be counted, but what is clear is the party has been pushed mainly out of Metro Vancouver, the NDP winning in Richmond for the first time since 1972, and winning in Langley and Chilliwack for the first time ever in a general election. They need to renew, and they need to renew in urban settings and speak to uh, urban voters. But bringing back urban Urban voters is just part of what the B.C. Liberals, now the Free Enterprise Coalition in this province, need to do. Many right-wing voters voted for the Conservative Party of British Columbia, so fixing the problem may not be very simple. But this time it's not as clear. Uh, the popular vote is much lower for the Liberals this time around. Uh, they, they've lost in places of traditional strength. Wilkinson's idea to stay on until there's a new leader not sitting well with many B.C. Liberals and very few of the new Liberal caucus was actually consulted before Wilkinson's announcement, all pointing towards the possibility Wilkinson still could be pushed to leave the role before that new leader is chosen. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Yeah, let's bring in Keith Baldry now for uh, more on Wilkinson stepping down. As Richard pointed out, this is... His departure is not imminent, and there are some complications in finding a replacement, yeah. Keith. Yeah, this is not a normal situation, Chris. First of all, we're in a pandemic. It's hard to conduct a leadership race at the best of times, let alone in a situation where you can't gather in crowds, hard to fundraise. So all the usual machinations that go into a leadership race, hard to pull off right now, which is why you're going to have a number of people in the, in the party advocating that that race happens after the pandemic. And that might not happen for a year or even two years. And it's, frankly, it's impossible to see, to envision Andrew Wilkinson hanging around as leader for a year or two. I think the caucus is going to rebel, it's going to revolt, and they're just not going to let him continue to be the leader of that caucus when the House resumes either this fall or next spring. So there could be a really messy internal situation about to explode in that party that's already hurting so much for its thrashing that it received on Saturday night in that general election. And we know you'll bring us the latest if and when that happens. Thanks very much, Keith. Yeah. Well, after a delay due to the election, the public inquiry into B.C. money laundering resumed today. The third phase of the Cullen Commission kicked off with some stunning testimony from a former casino surveillance manager who moved on to become an investigator for the B.C. Lottery Corporation. John Waugh reports. Criminals took a gamble believing they wouldn't get caught. That either loopholes or a lack of oversight meant they could use B.C. casinos as a laundromat for duffel bags full of dirty cash. I expect that today and over the next three weeks, you will be hearing evidence focused primarily on uh, the casino and gaming sector. A public inquiry into BC money laundering is now entering its most important phase. The Cullen Commission's first witness, a former surveillance manager for Great Canadian, and a BC Lottery Corporation investigator once stationed at the River Rock Casino. I understood that it was our role as investigators not to intervene. And then I mentioned a meeting whereby we were directly told that we don't talk to the customers. That 2012 meeting called shortly after Beeksma and another BCLC investigator, now whistleblower Ross Alderson, were seen as being too aggressive. I can only assume that uh, River Rock must have lodged a complaint that they were losing some of their big players due to our actions. Beeksma told the Cullen Commission a high-level BCLC executive told them they weren't cops. And did he use some, some fairly strong language to communicate that? Yeah, yeah, yes, in my recollection, uh, his words were cut that out. 
Beeksma's testimony also went back to the old Richmond Casino, where he said loan sharks were identified but not shut down. Once a, a loan shark was barred from the casino, they were replaced in short order. So you would go from somebody who you knew and identified and could monitor their activities to somebody new who you haven't seen before. Once the River Rock Casino opened, the number of suspicious moneylenders ramped up. The suspected loan sharks saw this as a new opportunity to expand. The Cullen Commission heard suspected money laundering peaked between 2010 and 2015. Likely a time when criminals felt their big gamble had paid off. John Hua, Global News. Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive, was back in B.C. Supreme Court today as she fights extradition to the U.S. on bank fraud charges. The latest hearings focus on whether or not Canadian and American authorities committed abuses of process when arresting Meng at YVR back in 2018. Ramina Dea has more from the first RCMP witness. Heading to court, Meng Wanzhou leaves her multi-million dollar jail her mansion in Vancouver, where she's under house arrest. Morning. Morning. RCMP Constable Winston Yep, the first witness on the stand, as Meng Huawei's CFO fights extradition to the U.S. on charges of bank fraud, charges she denies. Canadian officials, at the behest of uh, the Trump administration, engaged in an illegal search, an illegal interrogation, and an illegal detention of Meng Wanzhou um, under essentially a ruse to detain her prior to executing their arrest warrant. Meng was questioned by CBSA officers for about three hours without a lawyer at YBR on December 1, 2018. Then she was arrested by Yep. The Mountie testified he was concerned about safety if Meng was arrested on the plane. Meng's lawyer questioning the safety concerns and why the RCMP didn't execute the arrest warrant immediately as requested by Canada's Department of Justice. Defense, you didn't think for one moment that a 46-year-old international executive was going to be coming at you with a knife on a plane, did you? Constable Yeb, I don't know, Miss Mung. We always have to take precautions. She could be capable of anything. The defense is doing its job, tearing holes in the RCMP analysis and statements regarding the failure to arrest Miss Mung immediately, as required by the court order. Instead, RCMP maintains the position that CBSA was in control. Defense has argued there was a delay in executing the arrest warrant so Canadian border officials could seize Mung's electronic devices and share the information with U.S. authorities. Allegations the officer outright denied on the stand. Romina Dea, Global News. A man who's already a registered sex offender has been charged in connection with one of the two alleged sex assaults in South Vancouver earlier this month. 32-year-old Daniel Gukasian was arrested following an investigation into the October 16th incident on Main Street and 41st Avenue. A woman alleged that she was approached by the suspect and groped, and then a similar assault was reported in the area just a few days later. That incident is still under investigation. Police say Gukasian was charged and convicted in three violent sexual assaults back in 2014. He does have a, a prior history with us, um, you know, uh, similar incidences in, in, in a violent way. So it is very concerning to know that this is the same person. However, it's, it's almost a relief to know that 
we, uh, thanks to the tip line and to the, the numerous amount of people that called us, that we were able to get this suspect and get him back into custody. And Gukasian remains in police custody pending his next court appearance later this week. A fugitive suspect and a violent arrest. <gasps> no! No, don't do that. It all unfolded in Williams Lake, and after video of the incident hit social media, what the region's top cop says about it, next on the News Hour. If only these walls could talk. A behind-the-scenes trip down memory lane as we approach our 60th anniversary and all the wacky programming we produced. Coming up a little bit later on. And Victoria police come to the rescue of a pair of deer tangled in fishing gear. We'll show you how they rescued them later on the news hour. Right now, though, questions are being raised tonight about use of force following the RCMP pursuit and arrest of a dangerous driver in Williams Lake. Video of the incident is circulating on social media. It shows an officer kicking and hitting the suspect. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, RCMP say the footage doesn't tell the whole story. He's going down the hill. Oh, out and running. In Williams Lake, a passenger records the dramatic final moments of a police pursuit Sunday on Highway 97. Several RCMP cruisers converge after a spike belt stops a silver pickup. Oh, my God. (gasps) No! A foot chase ensues down an embankment. One officer can be seen pushing the suspect to the ground. Another then appears to kick and punch the man several times. I'm feeling this! The video has been shared on social media thousands of times, prompting questions about the level of force used on the suspect. The RCMP say the civilian video, while it captures part of the arrest, does not provide the full scope of the arrest and provides no context. Mounties say the arrest followed a high-risk, multi-jurisdictional incident that started in Kamloops and continued through Clinton, 100 Mile House and 150 Mile House. They say the suspect was driving erratically at high speeds and a loaded handgun had been linked previously to the truck. In June, Kelowna RCMP launched an internal review after a video appeared to show a police officer punching a man during an arrest. Police also indicated the video only showed part of what transpired. Oh my God. (gasps) No! As for the latest incident, the Mounties say Williams Lake RCMP has launched a code of conduct investigation. Discussions are continuing with respect to what role an external agency may have in reviewing the use of force and determining whether it was reasonable. Oh no. Hey, stop that! The Independent Investigations Office of BC says it is not investigating. The suspect remains in custody and faces numerous charges, including dangerous driving, flight from police, prohibited driving, and possession of stolen property. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Court documents allege a Kelowna RCMP officer admitted to misconduct after sexting an alleged assault victim in a case where he was the lead investigator. They also suggest that two other officers knew about the misconduct and failed to report it. Global's Jules Knox has details on what's being claimed in court. 
Constable Sean Eklund was suspended with pay in December last year after allegations surfaced that he'd been sending graphic and sexually explicit text messages to an alleged assault victim in a case where he was the lead investigator. It's alleged that the sexts suggested the Mountie and the alleged victim meet up in the Kelowna courthouse to have sex in the bathroom on the day they were both slated to testify against Lonnie Smith, who was charged with aggravated assault and unlawful confinement. After learning about the alleged messages, Smith tried to withdraw his guilty plea, and newly released court documents allege that Eklund came forward voluntarily and admitted to his misconduct in a meeting with then-officer in charge, Superintendent Brent Mundell. That, according to Smith's court application. The documents also allege that at least two other RCMP officers knew about Eklund's alleged misconduct, but failed to report it. The court application says Eklund's mishandling of the witness should have been disclosed at the earliest opportunity and also noted that the alleged assault victim was reluctant to testify to some of the charges, which Smith believes had been trumped up. The Crown says that it did allow for the guilty plea to be withdrawn, but adds that none of the allegations raised in Smith's application were addressed or proven in court. Smith's defense lawyer says Eklund was put under an investigation for breach of public trust and that the criminal investigation into the RCMP officer's actions is ongoing, but details are sparse. RCMP say Eklund is still suspended with pay and that they're confident that the process is underway, which include criminal and internal code of conduct investigations, will allow for a full review of the allegations. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Coming up on the news hour, a desperate search for two missing mushroom pickers. There is a deep concern that they are unable to respond. The vast resources looking for two men who disappeared near Pemberton five days ago. And it looks like something out of a movie, the high-tech operation to destroy a nest of murder hornets coming up. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge this evening. Keep in mind, lane closures for overnight maintenance. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Autoglass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Several search and rescue crews are joining forces in the massive search for a father and son missing near Pemberton. Teams are setting up base camp along the Mackenzie Forestry Service Road looking for 48-year-old Peter Oleski and 21-year-old River Leo, who've been missing in the area since Thursday. The last sign of them was their red Dodge Ram pickup truck found in the vicinity of the upper paragliding launch. Grace Key has more on why time is of the essence. The search continues just in the ridge behind me. The father and son have now been out for four nights. And as the temperatures continue to dip below zero, there is growing concern as the days continue. Well, a massive air and ground search continues involving RCMP, 11 search and rescue teams, the Lillette Nation, tribal police and search dogs. Search and rescuers did find some beverage bottles and mushrooms believed to belong to 48-year-old Peter Oleski and his 21-year-old son, River Leo. The items were found near their vehicle that's parked near a paragliding launch site. The area they went mushroom picking in the upper Mackenzie Basin is highly technical, with 
lots of hazards. So the search has been slow and meticulous, involving high-tech aerial searches. 442 with their night vision capability, uh, Department of Transport with a FLIR aircraft for many hours, uh, hours and hours of air search. So we had um, you know, high high tech technology used over the search area in in very quick proximity after they disappeared and no targets. So there is a deep concern that they are unable to respond to, to searchers. The search will continue on Tuesday, though this will be the last day using the heat sensing technology. The weather certainly held out today, but the forecast is expected to change in the coming days. In Pemberton, Grace Key, Global News. Looking like something out of a science fiction movie, scientists in Washington state have destroyed the nest of the so-called murder hornets. That's the good news. The bad news is they think there are still more out there. The scientists removed 98 Asian giant hornets from the nest not far from the B.C. border, including 13 that were captured live in a net. 85 more were vacuumed into a special container. The nest was found after the Agriculture Department trapped hornets and used dental floss to attach tiny radio trackers to them. Killing the nest was a complex procedure involving wrapping the tree with cellophane and plugging all but one hole for the vacuum hose and to pump in carbon dioxide. We wanted to hurry and move the eradication along is because we are entering that time of the year when queens may be emerging or uh, new queens may be emerging from a nest. So we wanted to make sure that we uh, took the nest out as quickly as we possibly could to avoid any queens escaping. They are now going to try to determine whether the nest had begun to produce new queens, but say they do suspect there are more nests in Whatcom County. They'll continue to set traps at least through November. Asian giant hornets aren't particularly dangerous to people, but they can kill an entire colony of honeybees in a matter of hours, hence the nickname murder hornets. Still ahead, science helps keep Halloween safe. Can you say trick or treat? Trick or UBC researchers have the best tips to keep your little ghouls and goblins healthy. And the final push for votes in a U.S. election like no other. 60 years of bringing you the stories that shape our history. 60 years of Global BC. In partnership with Connect Hearing, your hearing is important. Take care of it. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. Traffic is steady in both directions. Keep in mind, though, you're down to a single lane during the overnight hours for maintenance. Chromat Collision and Autoglass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Chromat. For location information, visit Chromat.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Some breaking news now. A divided U.S. Senate has voted to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to a lifetime term on the U.S. Supreme Court. This afternoon's vote caps a bitter partisan fight over the makeup of the court, which has taken place in the middle of an explosive presidential election. The vote was 52-48, mostly along party lines, with only Senator Susan Collins of Maine breaking with her Republicans to vote against the confirmation. The vote comes just eight days before the final votes are cast in the U.S. presidential election, and it gives conservatives a 6-3 majority on the high court, including three Trump picks. A week and a day to the U.S. election, and the candidates are crisscrossing the country, visiting states that show just how competitive this race has become. 
All of it as the pandemic continues to take a toll on Americans, including more members of the Trump administration. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. Frustrated with a virus that upended his campaign. COVID, COVID, COVID. President Trump is trying to take the pandemic out of the headlines, pushing the false claim that cases up because we test, 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 calling this a fake news media conspiracy. What are we going to do if we have no faith in scientists and we've made scientists out to be political? So this this has been an incredible setback. Over the weekend, the U.S. recorded more than 200,000 cases and hospitalizations are up in almost 40 states. We're not going to control it. We will try to contain it as best we can. Oh boy. With no national mandates, containment is a difficult task especially when the president pushes on with large rallies where many aren't wearing masks. We're rounding the turn. You know, all they want to talk about is COVID. By the way, on November 4th, you won't be hearing so much about it. The pandemic is not disappearing, and downplaying it this close to an election could be a risky gamble. They've admitted that essentially the entire country can get infected with a very large percentage of them dying, and it doesn't matter. As the GOP rewrites the story on the Trump administration's response, the Biden campaign is now eyeing states that have been impacted. Many are typically out of play for Democrats, like Georgia and Texas. Well, I hope there's going to be a lot of people vote for him because of who I am. A record-breaking 60 million ballots have been cast so far, and while Democrats had early gains, Republicans are narrowing the gap. And with the coronavirus playing heavily into this election, a new study shows that more than 80% of Biden supporters see it as a, quote, very important issue compared to just 24% of the president's supporters, evidenced in the fact that the vice president remains on the campaign trail, even as five of his staff members tested positive for the virus over the weekend. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. And in light of the pandemic, one of the biggest debates in B.C. households right now is to trick or treat or not to trick or treat. Dr. Bonnie Henry is on record as saying it can be done safely. And now a UBC expert on infectious diseases is offering some good tips. Linda Aylesworth reports. Halloween doesn't have to be scary this year, at least not where COVID-19 is concerned. Not if you follow a few safety tips. You don't want large groups of kids who don't see each other um, to be interacting with each other newly just for just for Halloween. So keep social groups to no more than six. And when you're out there, wear a non-medical mask. Integrating the non-medical mask that covers your mouth and nose into the costume is going to be a lot of fun for a lot of kids, I imagine. And there's no reason those masks can't be used as a creative canvas. Just don't poke holes in them. As for etiquette, keep your distance. Don't crowd into doorways. Don't crowd into crowded streets or areas. Keeping your space and maintaining distance. Trick or treat! As for announcing yourself at the door as per tradition, don't yell trick or treat. Use your inside voice. Avoiding large spraying of large volume type noises is probably not um, in the best recommendation for people. Then there's maintaining a safe social distance while giving out candy. First of all, letting kids rummage through a bowl is out. Instead, people have thought about um, using tongs or baking sheets. Um, the, The tube approach is being used more and more, I see. Sliding the treats down a simple PVC tube works great. 
As for when that candy comes home, you don't need to necessarily wipe down each individual piece of candy because um, that probably doesn't really reduce your risk that much. What will help is washing your hands frequently along the way. I think for the sake of our children and the sake of sort of keeping them sort of powered through for the rest of this pandemic, um, giving them a bit of candy and a bit of Halloween fun is a good idea. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. And just ahead, in 60 years of television, these studios have seen a lot of shows. I'm Lupi the Leprechaun, and this is my friend Stripey. As we approach the big anniversary, a peek behind the scenes at some of the best. And in sports, remembering David Braley, how the owner of the BC Lions had an impact far beyond football. Oh, they're both up. Oh dear, we have a problem. How Victoria Police and Conservation teamed up to untangle this mess on a front yard of Victoria right after Christie's forecast and yeah we're heading into halloween let's see how it looks that's right we're gonna get into our halloween forecast that's for sure chris it's hard to imagine though we're talking about halloween we still have snow on the ground in some areas beautiful shots though with the leaves uh, yellow there and the white there thank you to greg really for that one and look at the scene in whistler right now Come on. There you go. Uh, Wendy sending us that with the oranges, the yellows and the reds and the white off in the distance, which is nice. Right where it should be. Right. All right. So let's talk about what we're dealing with right now. We do have a number of weather warnings. We have a snowfall warning. McBride, Valmont area, 10 to 15 centimeters expected overnight and through the day tomorrow. Also rainfall for the north coast, central coast region. We did have a freezing rain warning in effect for Fort Nelson, but that has ended. It's just shifting off into the Alberta area. Here's the reason why. This band is going to shift and target the central coast tomorrow. Those of you in the Caribou region, we do have a slight chance of a risk of freezing rain and snow near the mountains. But most areas are looking at just rain. And you can see that snowfall for the Valmont sort of McBride area that we were talking about. So for Metro Vancouver tomorrow, it's one of those days you need to bring your rain jacket just in case. It's not until Wednesday that that front shifts further south. And that's when we have a better chance of showers. But over the next couple of days, we're going to climb back up to near seasonal values. So yes, the cool air mass is starting to shift away as the periods of rain shifts in. So mainly a dry further south from Kamloops for our region. It's just that chance of showers tomorrow, especially in the afternoon. That's when you have a better chance of seeing those showers. But a slow climb out of that very cold air mass, as you can see. Pointing out Halloween, everyone. I urge you to remember, we're still days away, but at this point, it looks like Halloween could be dry. Keep tuning back in throughout the week and we'll refine that forecast. Tonight's weather window is my weather window. I had to share this. This is a hike that Paul and I did on the Sunshine Coast this past weekend, and it was stunning looking out. This is from Pender Hill. That's the hike. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I know you would have missed the boys, but sometimes yeah. it's nice to get away, isn't it? Sure was <laughs> nice, yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. All right, Victoria Police and B.C. Conservation officers teamed up for a daring deer rescue on Sunday. Oh, they're both up. Two black-tailed bucks locked heads in the capital city after getting entangled in a fishing net. Police were called to the Fairfield neighborhood for a report of two deer in distress. And when they arrived, both bucks were also dragging that very large piece of driftwood you see in the bottom right corner of the screen. The deer were sedated and freed from the fishing line before being released back into the wild, healthy as can be.
Good. We needed that bit of good news today after some sad news in, in the CFL, Squire. Yes, uh, Lions owner David Braley died today at the age of 79. And when he died, it reminded a lot of people how he helped save two professional sports teams in this town. Not just the BC Lions, but before they were the Whitecaps, the Vancouver 86ers too. Years ago before that, uh, he was the knight in shining armor. We will look back at Braley and also what comes next with BC Lions ownership. Also, from Alan Thick to Pee Wee Herman to All-Star Wrestling, celebrating 60 years of television, some of it from this very studio coming up later. Hard to overstate the impact David Braley had on pro sports in this town. Squire joins us now with more about his legacy. Well, if he hadn't come, I don't know what the landscape would look like right mm -hmm. now. There would be the Canucks, but I'm not sure about anybody else. Uh, when BC Lions owner David Braley died today at the age of 79, the CFL didn't just lose an investor. They lost a sports philanthropist because Braley knew owning a CFL team is no way to get rich. He owned the Lions because he loved the Canadian football game, enough to put his money where his heart was. In many ways, Braley was the CFL's savior in the 21st century. Remember, there was a time he owned both the Lions and the Toronto Argonauts. He helped keep the two or two of the biggest cities in the league. When he bought the Lions in 97, he pretty much said that. He said the CFL needed the big markets. BC Lions aren't here. There is no Canadian football league. There was no greater champion of the Canadian Football League than David Braley. He owned the Hamilton Tiger Cats, Toronto Argonauts, and of course, the BC Lions. He saved all three franchises from becoming extinct. But David Braley was so much more than an owner who constantly wrote big checks to revive morbid pro sports teams. I've known him for 25, 30 years. Um, I like to say that, that uh, some people thought he was scruff and rough. I, I, I like to say that he had uh, the roar of a lion and a heart of gold. He really did. Mobilia. It was a heart that extended across the gridiron and onto the pitch. Talk to soccer people and the Vancouver Whitecaps of today wouldn't be playing in the MLS had it not been for Braley stepping in and buying the 86ers slash Caps franchise back in the late 90s. Much like what he'd done with the Lions uh, some years ago before that, uh, he was the knight in shining armor. This was a different situation for him, but he, he seemed to enjoy it. And in all honesty, if he didn't come along when he did come along, I think uh, we'd have been done at that point. For the time being, the stewardship of the Lions franchise belongs to the Braley how long that's the case remains to be seen, because as late as last month, Braley was once again discussing selling the team. He knew it was time that, that uh, between his health and his age, I've spoken to some potential owners. We'll take it forward over the next while we'll uh, uh, be dealing with his family and, and the estate, and we'll see what happens of whether it's a new owner or the family wants to remain in the uh, CFL and with the Lions. There's been some great owners in the CFL. There is some great owners right now in the CFL. But David Braley's at the top of the mountain of owners of the CFL. There's no question about that. Uh, his legacy will go on for years and years. Well, the Seattle Seahawks can say they still haven't lost the game in regulation this year, but they aren't unbeaten anymore after losing in overtime to Arizona last night. And the main reason they lost 
wasn't because Russell Wilson threw three interceptions. It's because for the first time this year, Wilson could not make up for Seattle's weak defense. Seattle, on average, has allowed the most yards per game in the NFL. Last night, they didn't get a sack or even a hit on Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray. His uniform was as clean as the kicker's was. So after that performance, the pressure to apply pressure on opposing quarterbacks is a lot higher. You know, it really comes down to generating pressure on the quarterback, and it's not just the pass rushers, you know, it's, it's, it's all of it. Um, we came out of the shoots early, you know, with, with pressuring and trying to get after it and, and create uh, a compliment, you know, to, to the guys, the front four guys, and uh, we're still there, I and mean, we still have to do that. We have to make it more difficult on the quarterback by, by harassing them, you know, that's a, the whole key is that, that guy throwing it and making his decisions, we have to do a better job in, in, in a number of ways. Uh, Speaking of quarterbacks, Patriots quarterback Cam Newton says he's physically good. He's feeling no after effects from having COVID-19. His problem in his last two games has been interceptions. He has five and no touchdown passes. He says it's fixable, and if he doesn't fix them, he won't be the Patriots' starting quarterback anymore. Um, I wasn't good enough. You know, I didn't, I didn't, no way, shape, form did I put this team in a position to compete. And, you know, that's inexcusable. This is the National Football League where, you know, a lot is put on the quarterback and, and, and you know, I have to deliver. And I haven't done that. And, um, you know, quite frankly, you know, it's evident. So, you know, here moving forward, you know, I know what the issue is, like I just said. And, you know, I just have to be better. The World Series, he was as good as his hat. That's a good looking hat. Uh, the World Series has a night off. It avoids going against Monday Night Football. Game six tomorrow around 5 o'clock hour time. The Dodgers have a 3-2 lead in the series. Most teams that have had 3-2 leads in the World Series have won them. The uh, Dodgers have not won a championship since 1988, but the last time they won, the Lakers were also NBA champions the same year, which, of course, is the case in 2020, mm-hmm. if you're looking for those sorts of omens. Anyway. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Here's Jay Durant now to tell us what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jay? Thanks, Chris. We'll have more on the new health orders from Dr. Henry as COVID cases continue to climb in B.C. And with Halloween just days away, it seems early to be talking about Christmas, but at least one family favorite during the holiday season won't be back this year. We'll speak with organizers of the Lights at Lafarge and Coquitlam as to why they say it's just not safe. We'll have those stories and more tonight at 11, Chris. All right, Jay, thanks very much. And for you at home... Imagine, if you will, a wrestling ring, exactly where I'm sitting. It's true in the history of this TV station. We'll show you how next. Global BC's 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician-referred hearing provider. Final stretch of our lead up to the 60th anniversary of this TV station first hitting the airwaves. It's actually on Halloween. These studios have seen a lot of action over six decades, and Squire Barnes shows us the different programs and personalities that still haunt the halls here. Starting back in the 1960s, when we were known as Chan 8, our building in Burnaby was a happening place. 
dance party shows, kids' shows. I'm Loopy the Leprechaun, and this is my friend Stripey. Talk shows, and anything else you can think of, because you had to produce your own programming to fill up a day. So back in the 60s, uh, there used to be only two ways to get to air, was uh, film or live. The advent of videotape meant live shows weren't as necessary eventually, but the studios were still in constant use through the 70s and 80s. We'd be doing a variety show in here, we'd be doing wrestling next door, and upstairs they'd be doing a kid's show. And Zigzag was one of the longest running of those kids' shows. The one thing they always said about Zigzag was, uh, it's not a kid's show, you know. Uh, in the guise of a kid's show, it was really for adults. Few shows done out of our building bring back as many memories as All-Star Wrestling, which was taped in the very studio we now do most of our newscasts out of. And right off the top. If you weren't on like an All-Star Wrestling or a Stampede Wrestling or a, a, a WCW or a, you know, if you weren't on one of the big TV shows, you weren't considered a major star. And major stars from other walks of life often came through this building thanks to talk shows like Alan Thick. It wasn't surprising to see anyone there. You know, anyone that was in town would, would be in the station at some, at some time, whether it was the Alan Thick show or Webster or whatever it was. They were, there were all people coming and going at all times. And it was really exciting. Oh, no doubt. Miss Pam, the makeup artist here. Yeah, Amazing. Here. And to see Al Wright in there, too, basically grew up in this building. His dad <laughs> yeah, worked after, here before yeah, You'd have to know the shot of the control board. That was his father, George. I think there's been a Wright family member working at this station right from the beginning until now. It's a good place to be. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Thanks, Christy. And thank you for watching. Have a good night, everybody. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.